0: A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The New Testament lesson is written in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, beginning with verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. When John and Peter were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Here ends the New Testament lesson. This is the word of the Lord. Be
1: to God. Thank you, Liesl. Last week we. Uh, read the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, uh, the unveiling that was given to the Apostle John while he was uh, exiled in the Roman penal colony on the Aegean island of Patmos late in the first century. And in that vision that we looked at last week, it was a vision of a dragon Uh, A dragon, a force of great evil that had been cast out of heaven and lost its ability to accuse the people of God before God's face. Uh, he was cast down because of what Jesus had done. The blood of the lamb had, had exposed him and forever dethroned him from any position of legitimate authority. And so the beast was then cast to the earth and we read how the church in, in his continued accusations that were now meaningless, the church overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, by their story of what Jesus had done. And yet in this defeat... Now, as we continue into Revelation chapter 13, the dragon has now fallen down to earth. He is defeated, but he is not yet fully vanquished. He is enraged. He is attacking the church. The church is overcoming him through its message, and so he calls in reinforcements that will enable him to continue his battle against the people who follow Jesus. This is Imagery, signs that any first century Jewish Christian would have been able to understand. Because as the dragon calls in his two reinforcements, what arise are two beasts. One beast out of the sea and another beast out of the land. We're going to read about them. The early Christians would have understood what they meant. We're going to talk about that. I want you to understand that I began work on this sermon before I knew what the results of the recent presidential election were, and so nothing I'm going to say in any way impugns the honor or dishonor of any particular figure in North America today. John wrote it. It's Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to begin in verse 1. In your pew Bible, it's page 1927 if you want to follow along in print. John writes, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. This beast had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who's like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words. And blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and all the inhabitants of the earth who will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. This beast had two horns like a lamb, but he he spoke like a dragon he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great miraculous signs, even causing the earth to in, to in, in uh, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. And because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. And he also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, Or the number of his name, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. We see two beasts. We're going to focus mainly on the first one, because the second one we talk about every week, though we'll talk about that too. The first beast... Any early reader would have recognized it's the beast that came out of the sea, that is, out of the Mediterranean, that is the Roman lake. The beast, the first beast, was the political power and corruption that was Rome. The power of empire, the power of politics. This beast, this political power, comes out of the sea to do war against the people of God. The image here of, of, of All of these these various animals is drawn from Daniel 7, where there were four beasts in Daniel 7 and the Hebrew prophet Daniel. And each of those beasts in that prophecy was a particular empire. And only here, all of the empires of man are merged into one because what's represented here is not a particular empire, but the power of empire itself, the power of politics, political power in its corrupt form. And it's incredibly powerful as a beast. Notice all the horns on its head. Horns in the ancient world were symbols of power. And in this case, it's got ten horns. Ten being a number of completion, meaning it has the totality of worldly power and influence. And then all of these blasphemous names on each head as the Roman Empire, the emperors themselves were, were the most rapidly spreading religion in the first century. We think the most rapidly spreading religion in first century Rome was Christianity. No, Christianity was second. The most rapidly spreading religion was the imperial cult as the cult of the divine Caesar was... Rapidly replacing the ancient pagan gods of Jupiter and Mars in terms of influence and focus, not just in Ephesus, but in all of the empire. And indeed, the, the divine Augustus, the emperor who is a god, blasphemous names. People are bowing down all over the known world, as they did in Rome, to its power. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. It says that it will last for 42 months. Again, a first century Jewish Christian reading this would have picked up on 42 as a very significant number. We like to say that the Israelites traveled in the wilderness for 40 years, but it wasn't for 40 years. How many years was it? 42. That time after they had been redeemed and brought out of bondage in Egypt, but had not yet crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, those forty two years between their rescue and salvation, but before they could actually enter glory those forty two years that in this case forty two months also called times time a time times and a half a time, three and a half years forty two months that forty two year period in which We have been redeemed, but have not yet passed into the promised land. That is a picture for this entire era in which we will always see the power of empire, the power of law and sword and abuse and manipulation, the power of of one nation that develops hegemony over all others and uses all others toward its own interests. You say, Greg, that hasn't happened today. Ask a Palestinian. (laughs) And he'll say, why, Palestinian Christian, gosh, why did my grandpa get forced out and have to flee? And why can't we go back to our ancestral lands and reclaim our property? And they'll probably mention Washington, not the man, but the city. Because even today, if you ask around the world, what is the empire today? They speak of the Pax Americana, the American peace, whereby we have peace And yet there's conflict in much of the world. It's not anything unique to us. It has always been the case. And it will always be for the 42 months, that is, the time between the cross of Christ in which we were resurrected and his return when we cross the Jordan again into glory. And this is... Not that government is a bad thing. You know, Paul says that government agents exercise authority given to them by God himself. Peter says, honor the king, speaking meaning Caesar. And yet, both Paul and Peter were murdered by Caesar under Nero's persecution in the 60s of the Common Era. Uh, Here we see not this beast that is government itself, but rather the corruption of government, the abuse of political power, the injustice that comes from the hands of those who wield human authority. It's like in Psalm 2 when the psalmist said, a thousand years before this, 3,000 years ago, that the kings of the earth make war against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's quoted in Acts. The passage Liesel read, when the early Christians understood that that was precisely what was happening in this era, the dragon accomplishes his, 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 his mission of hindering the growth of the gospel. And there are actually a couple ways he can do this. What they experienced in the first century was very heavy handed, it was the power of the stick, uh, but there's also the power of the carrot. The power of the stick is the power to abuse, the power to imprison, the power to threat, to make, you know, intimidate people physically, to to punish you for following Jesus. And that's still happening in much of the world today. Indeed, the first century is seeing greater persecution of Christians than in any century for 2,000 years. And yet, like any abusive relationship, there are always multiple ways to control your opponent. There is the power of the stick And then there is the power of the carrot. That is soft power, the more subtle strategy. In an abusive relationship, it's not the name-calling and degradation and imprisonment and attacks and destroying their self-esteem. It's coming back later when they're ready to walk out with the box of chocolates and the flowers. And gosh, honey, you're so sweet. You'd be so happier with me. Uh, It's soft power, and that very often is how Christianity has been neutered in its ability to actually proclaim Christ and bring the gospel to bear on people. It's what happens when Christians fall for the allure of governmental power, uh, this promise that if we could just get our guys on top and lead the way the Gentiles lead, as Jesus said, from above, then we could actually make the world better. And more just and come to the defense of victims. And yet whenever the church has been given a seat in political power, the gospel is what has been lost. It is the strategy of the beast. Jesus says, beware the beast that comes out of the sea. Beware of politicians. Beware of governmental power. Beware of them when they come to persecute you and destroy you. And beware of them when they come to you with a box of chocolates and a handful of flowers. Because the goal... The goal of the dragon, who is behind everything, is always the same. Whenever the church has been given power politically, the gospel has been lost. It happened in ancient Rome. It happened in Byzantium. It happened in medieval Europe. It happened in the state churches of northern and western Europe in the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, whereby Europe, even though Christianity is enshrined in many of the governments, the gospel is what was lost. It happened some would say in some of the American culture wars of the 1980s. In his book, Vanishing Grace, Philip Yancey writes about a Muslim man who told Yancey, I've read the entire Quran from beginning to end, and I can find in it no guidance on how Muslims should live as a minority in society. But I have also read the entire New Testament many times, and I can find in it no guidance on how Christians should live As a majority, uh, Yancey comments, Christians best thrive as a minority, as a counterculture. Historically, he says, when Christians reach a majority, they've yielded to the temptation of power in ways that end up obscuring the gospel. N.T. Wright, the uh, former Anglican uh, bishop of Durham, I believe, teaches now at St. Andrews in Scotland. He talks about this passage, and he says that as you... He points out that as you continue in the following chapters, which we're going to kind of skip over because they're not really fitting with the sermon series. Uh, But as you follow along in those chapters, it becomes clear that the imperial project that was Rome, this beast out of the sea, was going to abuse that power and continue enslaving peoples and trafficking subject peoples and engaging in abusive financial systems that would continue to empower the Roman elite. In this sense, Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx had it right about an awful lot because money and sex and power We're driving so much of the first century global system in which authority is abused to further the interests of those who hold it. To one degree or another, this is every empire, every polis, every city, every civilization. It is human nature that those with power use it to their own advantage. Uh, Wright continues and says that uh, yet we don't see in Revelation or even in the New Testament a retreat from the world. And neither do we see a vision of collaboration with worldly power. Instead, what we see is a vision of a community of Christians who are so confident in the kingship of Jesus that they are willing to speak truth to power even if it gets them killed. They don't have to get results. They're not results-oriented. They're oriented to Jesus. They don't need or want to be in power. What they want and need is to speak the truth to power, and they do it because they know that Jesus is their king, and Jesus is alive, and Jesus is going to rescue them even if they have to die to communicate their message. Stephen Les Carter of Yale Law School, he's also a Christian. He speaks of the prophetic ministry in this way. He says, Look at Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, you may have heard of her. She worked on voter registration for blacks in Mississippi in the early 1960s. She was a sharecropper, a poor woman. And at the one thousand nine hundred and sixty four Democratic convention, uh, she came before the party 's credentials committee. She represented black Democrats in Mississippi who were seeking to be seated on the floor of the convention and yet white Southern Democrats from Mississippi were in an uproar. They were not going to have black men and black women sitting side by side with them as they nominated a president and a vice president and so uh, President Johnson was freaking out. He just wanted peace. He didn't want anything to upset his chances of securing the nomination, his chances of then becoming, you know, getting four more years as president of the United States. And so he sent a delegation to, 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 to Fannie Lou Hamer to try to work with her to get a compromise whereby the honor and dignity of white Southerners could be respected, and they wouldn't have to be side-by-side with black Southerners on the floor of the Democratic Convention, but they'd somehow still get to vote. We'd just have to figure out some way to make sure that everybody's concerns are, are particularly taken care of. And so he sent, among others, Hubert Humphrey, who was then campaigning for the spot as vice president, and he offered her a deal to shut her up and keep the party unified, and not offend anybody, and Fannie Lou Hamer looked at Hubert Humphrey in the eyes, and she said, do you mean to tell me that your position is more important than 400,000 black people? Senator Humphrey, I know lots of people in Mississippi who have lost their jobs for trying to register to vote. I had to leave the plantation where I worked in Sunflower County, Mississippi. Now, Senator Humphrey, if you lose this job as vice president because you do what's right, because you help black people and everything, then everything's going to be all right. God is going to take care of you. But if you take the nomination this way, why, you'll never be able to do any good for civil rights, for poor people, for peace, or for any of those things you talk about in your speeches, Senator Humphrey, I'm going to pray to Jesus for you. That's speaking truth to power. Stephen Carter says what's so striking about this Christian woman was her willingness to lose. It was about bringing what she saw as the voice of Christ into the debate, the, the voice of justice, the voice of righteousness. If she won, she won. If she lost, she lost. She wanted nothing for herself. She was totally prepared to go back and be another sharecropper that she was before. And that's precisely what made her ministry prophetic, the willingness to be defeated. Nowadays, Carter says, it's my experience that people of faith who get heavily involved in politics, whether on the left, right, or in between, really become parts of political machines. In the end, it becomes part of helping someone win. That's where C.S. Lewis's caution from 60 years ago becomes so important when he warned Christians that if they edit their ministry to fit the needs of an election, then their ministry ceases to be Christian. Your faith becomes impure and compromised because of what you have to do in order to win, and indeed you become concerned mostly about victory. It's the allure of power. It can be the stick, but it can also be the carrot. And when we bite the carrot, we lose the gospel. It's the strategy of the dragon. in every generation to use political power to stop the advance of the gospel. And the cost here for advancing the gospel, for speaking prophetically, for speaking truth, the power into everyone else, in this case is severe. In verse 10, did you see it? If anyone's to go into captivity, Jesus says, into captivity he will go. And if anyone is going to be killed with the sword, with the sword you will be killed. The cost of prophetic ministry for the early Christians was very often torture, loss of family, loss of freedom, or even death. And yet they saw Jesus as king as one who was dead and is now alive, who would enable them to speak with boldness the word of God, to speak truth and justice and a message of freedom in Christ, without fear, knowing that the Lord himself would raise them from the dead. You look at how early Christianity grew. It wasn't by political power or manipulation. It was by subverting the corruption of the Roman cultural and political system through the power of loving self-sacrifice in Jesus. The early Christians would go out onto the beaches and into the forests first thing in the morning before dawn's early light, and they would listen for the sound of crying, for the squeal or the whimper of babies, because under Roman law you could expose children up to their first birthday, and, and it was illegal to go rescue those children because it was up to the gods to decide whether they live or die. And the early Christians would comb the beaches and the forests, and they would rescue those children at the cost of their own liberty. Sometimes they would take them into their homes. And they would raise them as Christians. They would minister the gospel of Jesus to them, and through that, the church grew Another ministry of the early church was a ministry to prisoners. A Roman prison was a hellhole of darkness and stench and disease and death, and you could not survive very long within it. They didn't feed prisoners. You were dependent on somebody you knew bringing you food, and the Christians would bring food to prisoners. And then they would save up money and scrape it together, and they would pay the fine, the bail money, in order to release prisoners, whether they knew them or not. And they would then bring released prisoners into the church, and they'd say, you're going to be one of us now. You're going to live with one of us. Do you think it was just evangelism that grew the church? It wasn't just the gospel spoken. It was the gospel lived out in practice at great personal cost. As they had a Savior who had saved them at great personal cost. What would it look like today for Christians to be gathering bail money in order to get kids out of prison And say, you're going to live with us until your court date. Can you imagine the power that the gospel would have in this city? The relevance, the significance. Do you not think that the city would stand up and notice? It's the power of the gospel to defeat the beast that came out of the sea. The power of the gospel to set people free. And yet there is, I mentioned, this second beast that comes from the land. The second beast that comes from the land is uh, it looks like a lamb, yet it speaks like a dragon. I think we have a picture. Can we get that slide? it's the original, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing. And, and Jesus himself had coined that phrase in the Gospels when he, he talked about false religion and the many false Christs that will come. And they will look like Christianity. They will look like Jesus. They're going to look like a little lamb, two little fuzzy horns, fur all over. Oh, it just looks so loving and spiritual and relevant. But when you listen to them, this is false religion. Because the voice is the voice of The dragon. The voice is the voice of human religion. Uh, Conjures up some freaky stuff. Thank you. And it ends up serving in verse 14 as a tool for those in power, religion as the opiate of the masses, the maintainer of the status quo, the gift to those in power, a construct of those with power bent toward maintaining their power. And so many Christians throughout history have lost their lives in the name of religion. It's happening today in Iraq and in Nigeria and in Kenya and in Vietnam and in Saudi Arabia and in Pakistan as Christians are persecuted in the name of God. So where's their hope in the face of these two beasts? The beast of political power in its corrupt form and the beast of false religion. There's hope here because you now belong and there's a book and there's a lamb. First you belong Verse 7, you are God's holy people if you are a Christian. Verse 10, he says, you are God's people. We all long to belong, to have a place where we're known, where we're loved, where we're accepted. It's what we're all really looking for, to be love, to belong, to be a people, God's people. That's people belonging to God, and that covenantal nature goes both ways, as God now belongs to us as our God, and us, his people, like a marriage bonded together in a relationship that nothing can change, and nothing can threaten, and nothing can take away. There's this belonging now that we have with God, and yet there is also a book. In verse 8... What is mentioned is the book of life. The book of life is mentioned, 40 to- uh, is mentioned uh, uh, six times in the book of Revelation. Forty years earlier, Paul had mentioned it in Philippians 4, verse 3. In chapter 17 of Revelation, John tells us that our names have been written in the book of life since the foundation of the world. And that's probably what this passage should have been translated. If you're reading the NIV, it's probably got it backwards. Uh, Yet, yeah, what does that mean? It means that from before creation, 17 billion years ago, or however long, I can't count, uh, your name has been written down for that long if you are in Christ. From before the beginning of the world, your name was selected as one who would know Christ, who would belong to God, who would be reconciled to him, who would be forgiven. It tells you that God's purposes are unstoppable. He knows your name and he knew your name before you knew your name. Nothing is going to stop him from rescuing the ones he loves. No effort of religion, no effort of political power. God's purpose is unstoppable because there's a lamb In verse 8, a lamb who was slain. That's the Son of God, the true lamb, not the false one, who purchased you for God at the price of his own blood, who gave his last breath to secure your destiny. The cross being that self-sacrificial warning cry of God saying, do not trust in princes and kings. Trust in the name of the Lord who loved you who washed you, who took your burden, took your guilt, took your shame upon himself and allowed it to crush him, who died in your place, who faced death for you. A king who actually loves you instead of just a king who uses you. The cross as the fatal cry of a savior to those he loves to find life in him. It's the opposite of religion. Religion says do, do, do. There are churches and temples filled with people being told what they must do. And yet in Jesus, what you see is done. It is completed, his last words on the cross. It is done. It is done. It is done. He has already saved you. You're not going to embellish the resume that he gives you. You are already secure in him. In February of 1941, Father Maximilian Kolba was arrested by the German Gestapo and sent to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. He was a Polish monk. He had founded a Franciscan order near Warsaw, and eventually he was assigned to the dreaded Barracks 14, where he continued to minister to his fellow prisoners. He would nod his understanding as men would pour out their hearts to him. And then, within barracks 14 of Auschwitz, he would raise his emaciated arm and he would make the sign of the cross in the foul air of that packed barracks. The cross, he said, Christ's cross has triumphed over its enemies in every age. And I believe, in the end, that even in these darkest days in Poland, that the cross will triumph over the swastika. And I pray I can be faithful to that end. And then one night a man escaped from barracks 14. And so it would not go well for those that remained. The next morning there was tension as the ranks of phantom thin prisoners lined up for roll call in the square. They were one prisoner short. Afterwards, Commandant Fritsch, ordered the dismissal of everybody except the men of barracks 14, and he forced them to stand still there in that plaza in the hot sun all day long. As evening came, the commandant would make a lesson out of these miserable barracks. The fugitive has not been found, he said. Ten of you will die for him in the starvation bunker. Anything was better then the starvation bunker, death on the gallows, even the gas chamber. This method, though, forced one to go without food or water until all of them had died. It was excruciating, slow, painful, torture. After the ten were chosen, a cry rang out from one of the men who was chosen. He began weeping and falling to the ground, crying out, My poor children, my wife, what will they do? And then suddenly there was commotion in the ranks as a prisoner had broken out of ranks and volunteered to take this crying man's place. It was Father Kolba. The frail priest spoke softly, even calmly, and he said, I would like to die in place of this one man who you have condemned. The commandant ordered it done, and the ten were marched to the starvation bunker where they would spend their last days. As the hours and days passed, the camp became aware of something extraordinary happening in the starvation bunker. Past prisoners had spent their dying days howling, attacking one another in a frenzy of despair. But now those outside the starvation bunker heard the faint sound of singing. For this time the prisoners had a shepherd to gently lead them through the shadow of the valley of death pointing them to the great shepherd. Franziszek, Gajonicek, was the prisoner whose life was spared. And he survived Auschwitz to tell the tale. And for 53 years until his death at the age of 95, he joyously told everyone about the man who had died in his place so that he might live. Uh, Friends, this is what Jesus did for you. You were destined for the starvation bunker. You were destined for torture and death. And the Son of God himself stepped out of line for you and took your place so that you might have life. The Lamb who was slain, friends, for decades, churches have been up to their steeples in politics on the left and the right. But politics and religion, the two things people expect to hear from Christians... Jesus unmasks them for what they are. The beast that came out of the sea. The beast that came out of the land. And he gives you a better way. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God who can set you free. Rome is long gone. Its power is vanquished. Its gods are forgotten and they are no more. But Jesus Christ is alive and at large on planet earth today seeking and saving all the earth. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your faithfulness and for the love of your Son who went to the starvation bunker on our behalf so that we might live. Lord, help us to live cruciform lives in our engagements with all people. Let us proclaim the truth, not to gain power, but because it's the truth that sets people free. We give you thanks as we consecrate the elements on this table to you in the name of your son, Jesus, who died. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts and let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're ready to come to Jesus in this meal, this is for you. You know, to be a member of this denomination or of this church. But here we see a God who saved the world by giving up power. A God who saved the world by dying for his enemies. Here you find the truth and it can set you free. For on that night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. Now after he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Christ took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.